as you make steps towards overcoming the infiniteness of your obstacle, when you find happiness and the satisfaction of overcoming the punishment of the gods. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. This life is meant to be difficult sometimes, but it's ultimately enabling us to to reach that potential and that we shouldn't limit ourselves, I think is another important aspect. We should never limit ourselves. Be ye therefore perfect. Now there's a boulder. This sounds like it's unachievable and maybe it will take you eons, but this is your task. Hi everyone. Today I'll be chatting with Porter and Nathan about Camus' parable of the myth of Sisyphus and also the first half of his novel, The Plague. To begin with, a very short quote of the day that has been on my mind for a while and that relates to, I think, several other texts and authors and ideas that we've discussed so far in this course. This is from Camus' Notebooks, in which he wrote this. Real generosity towards the future lies in giving all to the present. And for more about what that might look like, and for many other things, let's go into that chat with me and Porter and Nathan. Hi, Nathan. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. And here's Porter. Hello, Porter. Hey, Porter. And Porter, how are you? I'm very good. You know, Albert Camus really believed that life is absurd. Mm-hmm. and he didn't love the label existentialist, but he clearly fits into that camp. It may be hard for us to believe in Provo in 2021, where, you know, Sundance, Nathan and I were talking about Sundance, <laughs> Cer- certainly one of the most beautiful places and peaceful places on planet Earth. Um, Provo 2021, you know, the streets are clean. The traffic is relatively light. People cooperate with each other. You know, it's hard to remember that life is absurd, but to swing morbidly from Sundance, we've we've had certain reminders recently. Sh- these shootings in Atlanta and Colorado that life is indeed absurd. Horrible things happen for reasons that we can't explain, or for no reason. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This was especially true for Albert Camus. His life wasn't just punctuated with moments of absurdity or crisis. It was surrounded by them. You know, he was in Paris when the Germans invaded France during World War II. And he joined the French resistance. Uh, so he was intimately acquainted with the atrocities of the Nazis. You know, the hol- when he writes the plague, the Holocaust is uh, fresh news. And at the same time that he writes the plague, the gulags in Russia are in full swing. We're going to go from this text to Solzhenitsyn's The Gulag Archipelago. So, and, you know, if the Holocaust and the gulags don't make you doubt everything that you believe in, then I think you're not quite paying attention. Think, think of Ivan Karamazov and the girl in the outhouse and multiply that by six million. It's not hard to understand why people can look at a world like this and describe it as absurd or nihilistic. Everyone, no matter if they're people of faith or not, will have bouts of nihilism and despair and doubt. I think this is true. Camus is trying to help us find a way to assert that even in these moments where we have convinced ourselves that life is finite and full of suffering, uh, it's still worth living. Even good things, you know, like even like a picnic in the park with your children, that's kind of absurd. How did this come to be? Why is there something instead of nothing? It's absurd that anything at all just exists. You know, why are there things? 
So Camus is asking, how do we find a way to move forward into the world despite all of these clear and convincing, I will say, arguments of the absurdity of life? So having said that, I mean, I'm happy to summarize the myth of Sisyphus, just like what is the story of Sisyphus? But in the interests of me shutting up, do either of you want to just tell us in 30 seconds the story of Sisyphus, his punishment? What is he condemned to do? Yeah, Sisyphus is a mythological being that essentially lived his life uh, against what the other gods wanted him to do. He was very rebellious and did whatever he wanted because he wanted to do it, you know? Yeah. And ultimately, he died and essentially was cast down to this punishment in the underworld, right? And his punishment was that he would have to push this, this large boulder up and down a hill for eternity. And the myth is that, you know, he, like, as he pushes this, this stone up the hill, he has to watch it roll back down. And then essentially, like, that, that is his entire existence. Yeah. And that this is a tragedy. And it's, it's miserable for him because that's all he has to look forward to for his eternity, essentially. Forever. He, he pushes the giant boulder up. When it gets to the top, it rolls back down. So it's not only tremendously exhausting labor, but it's pointless labor. It would be one thing if he was building something or doing something productive, right. but it's self-consciously pointless labor. So he, there, so Camus describes this moment where the boulder rolls back down and Sisyphus has to turn around and walk back down to the beginning where the boulder now is. And this is the moment that Camus wants us to think about the attitude that Sisyphus has. And Camus thinks we must imagine Sisyphus as happy. What do you think about this? I'm not sure if happiness is maybe the word I would think of, but I think of very hopeful. I can think of no other reason that he'd be pushing up this rock over and over again so consistently without hoping that one day it just ends. Um, and so in a way, he knows his situation is fruitless and pointless, but he hopes that one day it won't be. So he keeps pushing this rock up the hill. But what if, what if he knows that it's an eternity? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I disagree with you necessarily, but let's make it as bleak as we possibly can. What if there is no hope that this will end? Can we still imagine him as happy? Uh, yeah, I would argue that you can. And the reason why is because he's lived his life. You know, like he, like, yes, he was rebellious in nature. Yes, he went against what you know, other people were mandating of him. But, you know, the beauty of the myth, and this is kind of what, uh, Camus talks about in his short stories, you know, at the end, he talks about like, I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain. Then he, he ends by saying one must imagine that he's happy because as he reaches the top of the hill and he's, he's pushed this boulder up, he watches it down and he has this moment of clarity. He he's conscious in that moment. And he realizes yes. that he chose that fate for himself. And like, that is him owning it. I, I do think obviously he's probably upset that he has to do this over and over and over again, because that is absurd and it is fruitless. But yeah. compared to the other people that are in this eternal existence, he lived his life and that was his choice. So I think that would be my argument as to why maybe Sisyphus is happy, regardless of what he's currently doing, you know? And I like the Camus makes this point that paragraph one, two, three, four, five, six, Camus says, the workman of today works every day in his life at the same tasks, and his fate is no less absurd. So you can, I'm sure you know people who live lives like this, lives of extremely dreary and pointless monotony. Right. So I could ask, is this an accurate metaphor of life? Nathan, go ahead. I was just going to add one other comment too. I, 
I love, there's two phrases that Camus uses, one at the end of the third to last paragraph and then one towards the beginning where he talks about how he, he describes fate. He says, you know, fate is a human matter which must be settled among men. And then he goes on, he says like fate belongs to him, referring to mankind. This is what makes existence absurd sometimes is, is if you lose sight of what your purpose is in life, if you don't have an understanding of what like you're doing or what the point is, uh-huh. then of course it's going to feel monotonous. Of course it's going to feel redundant and purposeless. <laughs> Sisyphus, he chose his fate. He combated that ideology. You know, he owned it. Fate is a human matter. Uh, what does this mean? Think about that and let me maybe flesh it out a little bit. Yes, Sisyphus chose his life and the, these are the consequences, but now he has to decide. Now he's faced with a new choice. How should he react to this eternal torment? What is What should his attitude be to his new life, his afterlife? What should his attitude be towards it? Should it be an attitude of, eternal self-pity, misery, grief, lamentation? Or is it possible, which would be the inevitable thing, of -hmm. course, or is it possible to overcome all of that self-pity and lamentation and smile while while you wake up and go to your crappy job that doesn't matter for 60 years? Is it possible to wake up and smile while you're getting ready to go to a job that doesn't matter for 60 years? That's a really interesting question. Again, it comes to perspective. I think if you want to combat that frustration and that sadness or that lack of purpose, it does require that you have, you need to have an attitude of gratitude, right? Like you need to recognize what you've gained or what knowledge you have or what opportunities you've been given. Or I I think if you lose sight of the blessings in life, then a lot of the, the enjoyment that you get out of it disappears too. Kind of like what Nathan was saying, it's about the individual attitude or the intrinsic motivation. I mean, there's a lot of factors that apply into people's lives. And even if they go to a pointless job, there's something else in their life that can motivate them, give them a sense of clarity. That as well allows people to be happy. Maybe it's at their pointless job, there's someone else at their job and they can talk to them and relate with them. And Fate is a human matter. I'm not gonna pretend to know everything that that could mean, but certainly one of the things that it could mean is exactly what you both have just said. It's actually up to you whether or not your life is a life described as meaningful or meaningless. You know what I mean? Sisyphus can, in a way, escape the psychological torment. So his psychological fate is within his control. I like that I like that Camus says this. I'm going to slightly change the topic here now. So you, you kind of have no choice. You, if you're condemned to such a life, you can choose to hate it or you can choose to accept it and smile at its absurdity. Isn't this absurd? I'm not gonna pretend that's easy. I'm certain I would not be capable of such a thing. But I do find it somewhat inspiring as a potential. Humans can do this, I think. We can be condemned mm-hmm. to quite dreary and painful lives and still and still be happy. This is Camus' word, happy. Last, the second to last sentence. Yeah, Nathan, go, go for it. I think... What you said is absolutely so true. I I would also add, you know, in certain moments of life, I wouldn't say it's even that like you can be condemned to like a certain fate or whatever. I think we all experience trials and tribulations, right? Like it's it's an expected aspect of life. I love the point where Camus talks about the boulder because like that's where my mind's going right now. He's describing the boulder and he says, 
you know, when the images of earth cling too tightly to memory, when the, the call of happiness becomes too insistent, it happens that melancholy arises in man's heart. This is the rock's victory. This is the rock itself, right? Everyone, it's expected at any point in life, we're going to have these trials. We're going to have this discomfort. We're going to lack pleasure, right? That's just a part of the earth. That's just part of the existence. And so we all symbolically kind of have this boulder that we're pushing at different points. Our perspective is ultimately what enables us to either overcome that burden of having to push this rock per se, or whether we're actually going to be tormented by it and suffer through it. Because I think, you know, if you're, if you're able to keep that attitude that, oh, this is just part of the process to becoming, you know, what I'm trying to become or whatever, like in that sense, the boulder itself has less meaning and you're able to have that clarity and that, that consciousness in your life. There's this poem I love by this Polish poet, Zbigniew Herbert, and he says in this poem that we must laugh at our suffering. And I find that an analogous point. So I, I, I want to be clear here. Um, when I say, oh, just be happy despite your, th- this is Camus' argument, we should just be happy despite our troubles. So let's say, oh, depression, things like depression, that's easy to overcome. Just be happy, you know? <laughs> no, 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 no. The rock could be depression, and that rock is never going away. Or it could be a crappy job, or it could be, a physical illness that never goes away. could be, as Nathan has said, any number of things. The point is you can just wipe it away. The point is that even in its presence, you can smile. Yeah? The joy is in the journey. And everyone has a different rock to push, but I think the joy comes from finding happiness in whatever your personal obstacle. As you, as you make steps towards overcoming the infiniteness of your obstacle, when you find happiness and the satisfaction of overcoming the punishment of the gods. This is exactly what Camus argues, I think. This is the second to last sentence. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. We like pushing boulders up hills. This is his argument. We like that it's hard. How do you react to this? You say the joy is in the journey. It's not about getting this work over with. It's not about finally being finished with it. It's not about accomplishing anything in particular. We like pushing hard things. We like going to the gym and feeling our muscles burn and the satisfaction of stronger, I guess. Or I think we talked about more towards the beginning of the year that we enjoy suffering. Very good. I think that kind of just goes along with this. We enjoy the the struggle, the suffering, just the journey that it is. This goes back to Don Quixote, I think. Why should your largest goals be unachievable? Sometimes people say, well, they shouldn't be unachievable because when you fail, you'll feel demoralized. But I think we like goals better that are unachievable. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone else. I think we like we like feeling like we're aiming, we're doing an, an impossible task. It reminds me of a, a quote that I came across. I was reading another book Um just something for fun, I think. And um, this came to my mind. I wrote it down. You know, discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. To, I mean, he, Camus says it himself. Like, it's essential to know the night. There's no sun without shadow, right? Yeah. Like, we need to have that opposition, maintaining that perspective that, like, you know, this life is meant to be difficult sometimes, but it's ultimately enabling us to to reach that potential and that we shouldn't limit ourselves, I think is another important aspect. We should never limit ourselves. Here's my favorite scripture ever written. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven is perfect. 
Now there is a boulder. Now there is an un, un, unachievable goal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We like this commandment. I think we like hearing Jesus tell us, this sounds like it's unachievable and maybe it will take you eons, but this is your task. Mm-hmm. This is your task. There's another poet I really like, Dean Young, who says, the error is not to fall, but to fall from an ungreat height. Are there last comments about Sisyphus before we shift into the plague here? I think if I just add one other thing, you know, like there's always going to be naysayers. It doesn't really matter what you're pursuing. There's always going to be someone that thinks that you're crazy or thinks that you're incapable. But ultimately, like we're the ones that decide whether or not we can achieve anything. And that's also where the meaning in our lives comes from. It's establishing that purpose for ourselves. This helps us transition right into the plague. Couldn't be more relevant to our day and age. And I read on Wikipedia that Camus' daughter, Catherine, actually has said that This is a quote here. We are not responsible for coronavirus, but we can be responsible in the way we respond to it. She's clearly been reading the myth of Sisyphus. You know, we can be enduring this pandemic and be happy because we can respond to it. And as we see the novel conclude, I think we see characters coming to realize this, but we're not going to talk about its conclusion. We're going to talk about its first half-ish. So where should we start here? Let's still keep one foot in with Sisyphus. Do you see these characters as embodying attitudes about life that that are Sisyphean? Sorry, Porter, go for it. I, I think it's just super interesting that Camus picked a boring city. They were happy with things the way they were, but they hadn't worked for anything. And so they, they didn't really place a value on like the happiness or the boringness yeah. of their life. And then as this plague hits them and they realize how good they had it, and now that they have to work to find joy in little things as they're, they're quarantined, they're entrapped in their city. I think that really kind of gives an edge to like the, the people who are striving for happiness. Camus obviously gives like a, a wide variety of characters throughout the book that shows um, different varying levels of acceptance, the way mm-hmm. things are, how much these people are accepting their situation. And kind of like we discussed earlier, finding joy and trying to overcome the big problem that the whole city's facing. I think they I think they they might learn some of these lessons slowly. I think they do eventually come to accept their fate. Mm-hmm. Nathan is saying there's something un-Sisyphean about their attitude. Yeah, I was just saying that Sisyphus has the perspective, you know, he's able to take a step back and like recognize, I think, some of the bigger picture, right? To Porter's point, these people, at least in the beginning, they don't have that perspective. It's very clearly missing. You know, they are self-consumed, they're selfish. They, I wouldn't even say they're very observant. They kind of just like, are aware yep. of what's impacting them. Yep. Um, but you do see that change as the, the book progresses yeah. a little bit. Yeah, just to go off that real fast. The plague to them is temporary at first. You know, mm-hmm. I'll see people I'm missing send out letters this will be over soon and their perspective changes to a more holistic perspective. That's when they start to find joy and despair. Yeah, they go through a kind of grief process. It's it's kind of like a citywide death of Ivan Ilyich process. I love what you say, Porter, about this this being a boring city. That's one of the questions I wanted to talk about. Why is this city so ordinary and so dull? Perhaps one reason is because he wants to con- he wants to convince us that this could happen anywhere. This could happen to the most unexciting people, you know, every corner of the world, not just the hot spots, not just the exciting yeah. places. But also, as you say, Porter, it's a kind of emblem. It's emblematic of their they're kind of zombies before the plague. Mm-hmm. They're not awake. They're not aware. They don't know what to live for. They're not observant. They're kind of self-absorbed. 
They're not alive. Remember Ivan Ilyich, his inner voice asked him, what life do you want? You want to go back to the life that you had? The life where you were on autopilot and you weren't paying attention and you didn't know what was valuable? It's a kind of citywide version of that here. So it's just everything is dull. Yeah, Camus yeah. kind of describes it in his own words. He says, the town we're on, it's treeless, glamorless, like soulless, uh, seemingly restful. And after a while, you go complacently to sleep there. Like it literally, there's nothing going on that makes it even remotely interesting because it's just so ordinary and so boring. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, so the, the, the novel is a process of them waking up. It kind of goes back to King Lear. I mean, we saw kind of Lear being asleep or blind. We saw Gloucester being asleep or blind. In King Lear, perhaps it's suffering that wakes Lear up and wakes Gloucester up. Lear is out in that storm and he is feeling the cold of the elements and the wind and the rain. He has to sleep in that hovel and he sees other people sleeping in the hovel. And he says, thou hast taken too little heed of this. And then he says, um, he's talking to himself or to kind of those in authority expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. So suffering, being vulnerable, letting yourself be vulnerable is what he realizes wakes him up. All the books that we've read so far, there's been some sort of suffering. We see this person confront this suffering, either overcome it or just learn about it and accept it. And I think we're watching this whole city accept this suffering. We just want to see the change, overcome it, maybe become a better city because of it. And I think that's what involves yep. us in this book, the suffering we want to, and we want to overcome our own stuff well. So it's like a hopeful book. It's, I don't know how to pronounce the name. Dr. Rio, is, is that how you say it? I'm going to, I don't know. I'm going to say Rieu. Rieu. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> Apologies to all French speaking people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Rieu, he, he has a really profound one-liner that I really liked early on. He says, okay. it ends by getting on one's nerves. I don't know. I feel like that's maybe like Camus kind of hinting at how to wake up. You have to reach a point where you get uncomfortable. You know, if you're if you're constantly in this like ordinary life, if you're just totally stagnant yep. and you're comfortable and you're not changing and you're not progressing, you're not going to be annoyed by anything, right? It's just the norm. So I, I thought it was interesting that that came out pretty early on in the book because, you know, if if something's on your nerves, if you're frustrated with yourself about maybe a way that you're acting or like the growth you're not experiencing or yep. something along those lines, like that ultimately is what's going to drive you to change and, and wake up. To use a very cliche and sentimental metaphor here, it's that it's that grain of sand in the oyster that enables, that, that catalyzes the composition of this pearl, you know? Mm-hmm. We have to let things get on our nerves if certain aspects of our nobility are allowed to fully arrive in the world. You know, you can't be a hero if there's no context in which heroism is needed. I mean, there are there are characters like, I want to talk about Qatar specifically in a minute, but Rambert, yeah. He wants to escape immediately. They're locked in. They're put in this hyper quarantine. He's looking for any way out. He tries. He keeps trying. He keeps, he keeps trying. We'll see his attitude kind of change across the book. But that's one response to this pandemic, escape. Rieu, I think, is willing to go to all these patients' houses, lance all these boils, look at death. He's a kind of proto-Gerasim in that sense. He's willing to just be with the patients and look at death. And then there's Qatard. So those are kind of two different reactions to this pandemic. And then there's Qatard, who even before the pandemic really is in full swing, attempts suicide. 
why does this happen? And again, I don't, I'm not hoping that you say a certain thing. I'm mostly just interested in your reactions. I'm not sure there is a correct answer. Why does this novel begin with an attempted suicide? And the the explanation that Qatar gives is that he has a quote unquote secret grief. That's his motivation for trying to kill himself. What are we being told about human nature or uh, human suffering or the condition of the world by having this event kind of introduce, be one of the introductions to this novel? Why put this at the start? He was already half the suffering, so he seemed to overcome the plagues, difficulties faster. He just seemed like a happier person Yeah. Um, sooner just because he had already been through the suffering. He had already pushed his rock up the hill, so to say. Whereas the other people, you know, weren't willing to kind of accept that. Like the, the Inquisitor is like, you're disturbing the peace, commit suicide. Like, why are you doing this? This is your fault. I don't want to have to deal with this. Like, I want to go back to my boring job, you know? And this man is trying to push his rock up the hill. And, and when he does, he finds that clarity and a happier person. So I think he's kind of like a contrast almost to the way the city was. It's very interesting how his reaction, he's the only one in the plague in the pandemic who seems content and we're told that part of the reason is because he now has company now the crisis is community-wide and he's not alone in his suffering anymore i think that's really important that his secret grief he felt alone and, and exiled from everyone else but now his grief isn't secret now everyone is feeling grief so that's teaching us something about the importance of mourning with those that mourn and sharing suffering I really like that. I think that uh, the dynamic aspect of his character is really at least appealing to me just because of my personal experiences. I found it interesting that when we were very first learning about him, he was described as the invalid or the unfortunate man. Those are the two descriptions that Camus was giving him, right? And like, it's interesting that you guys are making this point because if you, you know, recognize that like all of a sudden other people are understanding because they're experiencing similar plagues, right? Yep. That's when he finds his happiness because he's understood and he, you know, feels that association with other people. Excellent. He's just no longer a problem with people. You know, he's with the people. So I think that was interesting. Yeah, he felt that's a good point. He he felt like he was a burden. He felt like his secret grief was a burden to the community because that's how the community was kind of treating it. Oh, look at all this trouble you're causing. You promise you won't cause any more trouble. But now it's trouble all around. So he feels relieved. You know, he feels immense relief. Yeah. How do you think, let's just talk, maybe we should have started this way. Does this description of this fictional pandemic map well onto your own experience for the past year? Compare and contrast, yes. this is the question. Porter is saying yes. But I think it's a little exaggerated from my personal experience. But I would I agree with a lot of the characters, the doctor or the porter. I, I find myself being like, oh, yeah, that kind of happened, that kind of happened, yeah. So I thought it was... Well, I mean, the, the plague, their plague is much worse. I mean, if you get it, yeah. it, it seems quite possible that you'll die. I don't know the yeah. exact odds, but, you know, it, it's the bubonic plague, so it's pretty bad. We've been lucky this time around, and we're not facing a pandemic. We're not facing a disease that's nearly this deadly. But So even though the stakes aren't quite as dire... You're right, Porter. I read this and I think, oh, that's just like us. That's just like us. Can we think of any examples? Where did you... The news reporter that wanted to get out, he, he just didn't want to accept the fact that he was a part of this. I, At the very beginning, I was very much like that. I was like, I don't really care what's going on here. I just want to do my own thing. I want to go yep. rock climb, hike, go explore the world. I don't know why I'm being restricted. I was a little mad about it. 
I kind of came to expect it. See some logic. Yeah. I relate a lot with that. Yeah, there's there's deni- there's a kind of denial stage. I mean, I went through that stage at the beginning. Like I heard people saying like, oh, we'll be in for, I this was probably early March. I heard people, or mid-March, I heard people say, oh, this this will affect our lives for months, they said. And I thought, yeah. it's not, it's not. Months, <laughs> come on, months, you know? How stupid and naive was I? So there is this kind of, um, I don't know if that's quite denial, but there's that stage. Yeah, Nathan, where, where did you personally identify it's interesting. I, as I've been reading this book, I'm, I'm really glad that this is the one that I get to analyze because for me personally, it's felt extremely relevant. COVID aside, you know, if COVID wasn't even a thing, I feel like there have been moments in my life, especially since I've started college, you know, back in 2016, there have been countless times where I felt like, you know, what am I doing? Like, what am I trying to accomplish with my life? Like yeah. these are the different things that, you know, everybody's kind of asking themselves right now, but it's been hard. Like it's been really hard for me. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm inspired by the character. Uh, is it Jean Tarot? Is that how you pronounce it? I, I sure. Say it. But anyway, I've been inspired by him reading this book because he's, he takes a lot of the pressure off of himself by just doing things that he finds happiness in by being observant by, you know, yeah. recognizing the beauty that's around him, even in the midst of all this chaos, you know? For me personally, this text has been really awesome because it's just really put into perspective that like, you know, there's there's so much that we don't need to know right now. Like we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to be, you know, solidified in, in who we are or what we're doing necessarily. But as long as we recognize that like we're progressing and we're growing and we, you know, have things to contribute and we're valued and you know, there's things that we have to be grateful for. As long as we have that perspective, ultimately, it doesn't really matter what's going on around us. And, you know, I think that's particularly relevant with COVID, you know? That's a great thing to say. I mean, this, this is an important work, even pre-pandemic, as you say, Nathan. And people have interpreted it as a kind of allegory for Nazi occupation. So the plague is the Nazis. And how do we now live under this this kind of metaphorical plague? Can we still find meaning and happiness? So there are there are all kinds of ways in which this metaphorically is true, whether or not there is a little literal pandemic. I also love this like exile. That's one of the things I'm trying to find these pages, but oh, it's like on page 71. Go there just for a second here. Thus, the first thing that plague brought to our town was exile. And the narrator is convinced that he can set down here as holding good for all the feeling he personally had and to which many of his friends confessed. It was undoubtedly the feeling of exile, that sensation of a void within which never left us. Right. And then if you turn the page, he says, thus too they, the citizens of the town, came to know the incorrigible sorrow of all prisoners and exiles, which is to live in company with a memory that serves no purpose. Even the past, of which they thought incessantly, had a savor only of regret. For they would have wished to add to it all that they regretted having left undone while they might yet have done it with the man or woman whose return they now awaited. Just as in all the activities, even the relatively happy ones of their life as prisoners, they kept vainly trying to include the absent one. And thus there was always something missing in their lives, hostile to the past, impatient of the present, and cheated of the future. We were much like those whom men's justice or hatred forces to live behind prison bars. They have no, they kind of regret the past because they didn't live, they weren't alive. They're impatient of the present, mm-hmm. 
and they're on there they feel robbed of the of the future so they're exiled from the people that they love who are across the border of the quarantine they're exiled from the past exiled from the present exiled from the future i feel not as dire as them but i feel a little bit similarly you know on 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 a smaller version i've gone through this i thought oh i should have done this we should have spent more time with my kid's grandma than we did you know and when will this end when will this end impatient of the future and sorry, impatient of the present and slightly robbed of the future. Like, oh, this won't happen anymore. And that won't happen anymore. We have to come to grips with this. Any comments about that before we, I have another question though, but yeah. Yeah. I had, I had that exact underlined and highlighted. I remember last year I felt the exact same way in patient, you know, with the present. I thought it was really interesting that the doctor, he knew the statistics that like plagues and wars have happened the same amount throughout history. And we can't seem to accept that it's going to happen during our time at our town. And I think we just have to come to realization like, yeah, this is our time. And it was totally plausible that it could happen now. And we need to find joy in the now and not be impatient for the future, the past, you know, no regrets that way. and Just kind of live now. Excellent. There's a moment where Camus describes well, I guess the narrator here is talking about all these rats dying. He's talking about the men dying. And he puts it together in the same sentence. He says, rats died in the streets, men in their houses. None would escape it, right? And like, yeah. um, I think that that is important to realize. Death is inevitable. Like, we're all going to experience what you were describing with us regretting the past, being impatient about what we're currently in and like what we have to face in the future. But like, that's all inevitable. But... <laughs> It's important to just, you know, keep that perspective that there's things going on in the moment. We can't change the past. We can react to what we're dealing with now and like, you know, eventually dictate what our future looks like, regardless of what society would tell us. Yeah. I'll just add one way in which this pandemic mirrors our own, which is he says that the worst part of it was the monotony. You know, that that was the plague. The same thing over and over and over again. And I felt that I have two more questions before we wrap up. They're kind of big ones. Uh, the first is uh, Father Panlu's sermon in which he says this plague is a, basically a, a curse, a biblical style curse, because you have not been living right. So I want to ask you how you react to that. And if you think there's any validity to this argument, does God exercise any control over things like the plague or natural disasters? I also want to talk about the character of Grand. He's another character we haven't talked about. And he has this literary project. It's taken him years and years and years, months and months, just revising one sentence. So what is that character doing in the novel? Uh, let's start with Father Panlu. Do you read this sermon and think, this is horrible Christianity? Or do you read that sermon and think, well, yeah, God must be in control. This must be intentional. How do you react to Father Panlu's sermon? I think naturally we want to assign meaning to everything. Just that's human nature as we, we naturally want to understand why or what or how, you know? Yeah. And like, I think that that's, that's essentially the question that we're talking about is, you know, like, is God behind the suffering that these people are experiencing? And if so, are they truly the ones that are behind it themselves? Right. <laughs> I think that that can kind of be a dangerous perspective to have sometimes because Sometimes things just happen. And if you're if you're victimizing yourself or like blaming others or yourself, it's hard to keep a positive outlook because you can't control everything. Sometimes we just have things happen because they happen. And as people, we we 
react to those things, but like ultimately it's just part of the mortal experience. Porter thoughts. I, my reaction to the sermon, I didn't really like it. It seemed upsetting to the people and I don't think it was their fault. A plague happened, you know, kind of like I mentioned earlier, a plague happened as often as wars. It seemed a little overbearing, I think. Hmm. And so naturally I like, we'll see what happens to father Penlu's attitude as the novel progresses. I like your guys's points. Even if you believe this is a Christian, it does seem rather uncharitable to call them out in, in the moments of their suffering. But I, I like Nathan's point too. This is why I love that moment in Ivan, the death of Ivan Ilyich, where his inner voice tells him there's no reason for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, That can be immensely peaceful. It's not necessarily because you've sinned. It's not because God thinks you deserve it. This is part of mortality, mortal existence. Random things will happen to you for no particular reason. This is one of my favorite quotes in the, the first half of the novel where Camus says, pestilence diverts attention and confounds issues, essentially. <laughs> Something along those lines. Yeah. And meaning like, what? Meaning that it's easy for us to view something that's happening to us and like blame that as the problem. For us to be like, oh man, like I'm, I would be so much happier if I wasn't struggling in school right now or if this person wasn't mistreating me or, you know, mm. if I didn't have these problems in my life. I'm sure there is validity in saying that because if that wasn't part of your life, you wouldn't be saying it at all. Right. But like at the end of the day, that's, that's seeking external validation. That's seeking external happiness. And I think a lot of true happiness and true purpose in life comes from within. It's very much like what Virginia Woolf says in a room of one's own, you know, you can think about the oppression, you can think about your suffering, you can think about the people that have been mean to you, but then you distract yourself from the task at hand. And if you don't have a clear mind at the task at hand, all is lost. In three minutes, can we talk about what is being told to us about humans and the human condition through this very bizarre project of revising one sentence for weeks and weeks and weeks? Why does Grand do this? What is the point? Is there a point? How did you react? I empathized, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a good thing that I did procrastination is Mm. definitely one of my biggest flaws. And I think that like, ultimately that's definitely impacted me when it comes to just like my well-being, Right. And I think that that's the thing kind of going on for him. That's great. I don't quite know how to interpret this. Is this, is this procrastination? Is it a kind of self defeating perfectionism? I think possibly yes, but maybe this is a coin with two sides and maybe on the other side of the coin, it's a kind of heroic, Sisyphus-like, noble, even in the midst of pandemic, grammar still matters. You know, beauty still matters. <laughs> be, be ye therefore perfect, you know, make, make ye this sentence perfect. Is it kind of heroic? You know, it, it pulls me in these different directions. Porter, how, you, how do you react? I liked Grant's character because he seemed relatively unchanged by the the plague that was going on. And so to me, he was just almost like single-mindedly obsessed with this perfectionist sentence that he, you know, that was what was, I couldn't tell if it was making him happy or he was just obsessed, but the plague kind of didn't have an effect on him. And and I thought that was interesting that he put that in there. I think Grant should be careful. Eventually, Grand, this is what I would say, you're going to have to accept this. You're going to have to settle. And it, maybe you mm-hmm. won't think it's perfect. But Porter, I like your comment too. 
just put your head down. You know, if the world seems to be falling apart around you, put your head down, do your best work that you can on a task that you think matters. Don't take external chaos as an excuse to abandon what looks like a pointless task. Yeah. Make sure that your dishes still get washed. You know, make <laughs> yeah. sure that your your the the coat of paint you're putting on your house is as good as you can make it. We've all been at home working from home. I don't like giving life advice, and I have been known before in Zoom meetings to wear pajamas. You know, <laughs> but I think we should be careful. I think we should be careful. Maybe we should still dress up as we would if we were meeting in person when we do on Zoom. Because why? What am I trying to say? It's a sign that. The small things still matter. And that a pi- if we pile enough of these small things together, then we have a life. But if we start letting this go and we start letting that go and we, we wear our pajamas, we stop showering, we let the dishes pile up, then where are we? You know, mm-hmm. So make sure your grammar is still tight and your dishes are still washed, et cetera, et cetera. End of sermon. Uh, thank you both for a great chat. We've run out of time, but always much more to say. Sounds awesome. good. Thank you. That was fun. Very good. For the poem of the day, there are many great plague poems that I could read, and maybe I'll read one for the next recording when we discuss the second half of this novel. But this is a novel about love, perhaps, even more than it is about illness. And so I wanted to read a love poem brought to my attention recently by one of you, so thank you. This is called Early in the Morning by Lee Young Lee. While the long grain is softening in the water, gurgling over a low stove flame, Before the salted winter vegetable is sliced for breakfast, before the birds, my mother glides an ivory comb through her hair, heavy and black as calligrapher's ink. She sits at the foot of the bed. My father watches, listens for the music of comb against hair. My mother combs, pulls her hair back tight, rolls it around two fingers, pins it in a bun to the back of her head. For half a hundred years she has done this. My father likes to see it like this. He says it is kempt. But I know it is because of the way my mother's hair falls when he pulls the pins out, easily, like the curtains when they untie them in the evening. Okay, that's it for now. Like I mentioned, there will be another recording soon about the conclusion of this novel. In the meantime, keep reading it and keep enjoying it. <laughs>